that are possibly the most important section of uh, the book of Isaiah. So um, uh, I hope you have a sense of anticipation that I have as we uh, embark on this. We're going to read from chapter 40 in Isaiah. Let me just read a few verses. We're going to be studying all of chapter 40 and in fact uh, the first uh, 20 verses of uh, chapter 41. And uh, I don't want to read all of those, but I want to read some selective verses. Beginning at the beginning of chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now let me go to chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I think it's every few months, or at least it seems that to me, that we um, uh, uh, hear in the press that there's a new discovery which is a, a step further towards the cure for ageing. Because we don't like getting older, do we? The symptoms of age are so distressing, wrinkling skin, aching joints, a spreading waistline, a fading memory. That's only what's happened to me so far. <laughs> Actually, this year they brought out a new cure for baldness, you know. It's something that I have a slight personal interest in. Um, it's the latest drug in a long tradition of remedies that uh, um, goes back at least to uh, Cleopatra. You know, Cleopatra gave Julius Caesar, a, a, who was, by the way, famous for being trichologically challenged, as they like to say, Julius Caesar was given by Cleopatra a mixture of deer's marrow, horse's teeth, and bear oil to spread on his head. Actually, he still died bald, but um, perhaps maybe with a few less friends if he put that on his head. But we love to search for eternal youth, don't we? Because the ageing process, it saps us of our vitality. It wears us down. It it distorts us, it damages us, it erodes our bodies, and it reduces our physical capacity. And, and frankly, we hate it. Actually, I've noticed something. People's Christianity can age just as painfully. Now, once we were so excited about our faith... But now it feels as dull and painful and weak as, uh, as an ageing body. The disappointments in our Christian life can mount up over the years 
in the same way that the little assaults on our body, on our physical system, mount up until uh, we end up, in fact, with a faith that uh, is damaged by the ac accumulation of a thousand injuries. Now, often those disappointments are within our family, aren't they? Perhaps we once prayed with such confidence that our children would come to faith, and they never did. You know, perhaps we embarked on a marriage with the, the, the bold hope that this union was made in heaven, but only over the years it's worked out to, to be very difficult to work it out on earth. Some people, perhaps even their marriage, failed. Sometimes, for some of us, the most painful knocks are in our career. We never did rise quite as high as we thought we would. We worked all of our, our lives only to be forgotten the day after we uh, retired or were given our redundancy money. I think perhaps one of the most damaging things for our uh, faith, one of the things that ages it the most, is the long-term erosive drip of spiritual failures. Sins that we've never mastered. Uh, uh, a lack of any evangelistic success in our lives. Prayers that, that we've prayed for years that just seem to drift off into the vast voids of space. Things that wear us down and damage us and age our faith. And of course, our immediate response as Christians is to reach for the spiritual oil of Eulah, isn't it? Put something on which uh, boldly claims it will reverse the aging process. Because we, we yearn for that, that joyful, vital, optimistic faith that we once had. We desperately look around for some spiritual plastic surgeon who will put us back together as we think we ought to have been. But actually, I have to say, that way, I think, lies deceit. It's as deceitful as the facelift. There is a beauty about youth, you know. But youth cannot stay with us forever because uh, there is a naivety about youth as well. Which once it's gone, we cannot recover. Nor in the long term should, I, should we want to recover it. Now, I think we, we forget something very important about growing old. We forget that actually, the, in the long term, the healthiest and most beautiful way to grow old is to grow old gracefully. That's as true about our spiritual uh, walk as it is about our physical walk. See, Isaiah, in, the, in, in these... Uh, uh, chapters that we are going to be studying over the next few weeks is actually addressing people whose faith in one sense has, has grown old. It has been battered. The first 39 chapters of his, uh, of his book, he's actually been warning the nation of Israel again and again that their sins and their idolatry are going to force God to allow them to be sold into exile, to be overrun by the, the Babylonian, Babylonian nation and to, to be taken away from the temple, from their homeland and to live in a country which is not their own. And at the beginning of chapter 40, Suddenly we find Isaiah addresses the people after that has happened. 
From this point on, in fact, in chapter, uh, from chapter 40 on, onwards, he is not so much warning the people that there is going to be a major disappointment, a major knock coming their way if they go on as they are. Now, he is dealing with the people after they have had such a knock to their spiritual lives. From this point on, he is speaking to people who are in exile. Actually, historically, the events uh, uh, that Isaiah will describe and will allude to happened a long time after Isaiah himself had died. But Isaiah foresaw what would happen with such clarity that he knew he needed to address those people after the worst had happened. And we know from the beginning of uh, his book, he wrote uh, a message which was to be stored up for a future generation. Maybe it was precisely this message. A message to a people in exile. And it's a vitally important message for us, therefore, because um, the New Testament makes it plain that Christians actually live as exiles in the world. Heaven is their home now, says the New Testament, and uh, we are certainly not there yet. And we will find in the real world that often we live in, in a hostile environment, just like the Israelites were going to live. In that hostile environment as well, it is so easy for us to feel separate from God, as the Israelites did. It's so easy to feel deserted by him, ignored by him, shunned by him. It's easy to question whether God really is as powerful as he claims he is. Should the Israelites, perhaps, just knuckle under and accept what appeared to be a self-evident truth that the god Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, was far more powerful than Yahweh, the god of Israel. After all, hadn't Marduk destroyed Yahweh's temple? In the same way, in, uh, in our day, shouldn't we perhaps accept that the enormously powerful forces that we instinctively sense are outside, are there outside of the church, really are more powerful than God of Christianity? Well, Isaiah is going to set out to answer that question over these uh, 15 chapters, 40 to 55. And the answer that he's going to give is absolutely fascinating because uh, over these chapters, he's going to, to uh, uh, answer that question of who is more powerful by talking uh, about someone he calls my servant. Comes up again and again. In fact, it's not one person at all, it becomes clear. Uh, Isaiah uses the phrase in at least two ways and possibly more. First of all, in the passage that we're going to be studying this morning, uh, chapter 41, verse 8, he speaks of Israel herself as my servant. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, he says. Israel is God's servant then, says Isaiah. But then Isaiah will show us very clearly that Israel has failed as God's servant. What's God going to do about it? 
Well, it becomes clearer and clearer as time goes on that God will raise up another servant. And it's not entirely clear initially who that servant will be. Is that other servant Isaiah himself? Is that other servant a faithful remnant of of Israel, the faithful people? Well, in the end, it becomes clear it is neither of those. The other servant is uh, a servant who is absolutely perfect, who will suffer on behalf of the failed servant, the people of God. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's what we're going to start discovering over the next uh, few weeks, and it's, uh, it's very, very exciting. This week, though, we need to just start to get a flavour of what Isaiah's prescription is for this chosen servant, this servant whom God has raised up for himself, and yet a people who find themselves in deep trouble spiritually and in danger of becoming deeply cynical, people in exile. And overwhelmingly, we find uh, in the section we'll study this morning and beyond, God wants to comfort them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. You know, quite how her sin has been paid for is not explained there and is not going to be explained for, for, for uh, more than 10 chapters. We're going to have to wait for that. What we want to learn this morning is how God comforts his people. You've got on your uh, uh, insert, the uh, uh, notes, a copy of uh, this. Probably doesn't quite fit on the uh, overhead, so you'll have to look at it on your little sheet. The structure of Isaiah 40. and uh, the first 20 verses of uh, 41. And there you'll see it's, it's almost symmetrical, I think. It revolves, in fact, around two great, big, important sections, chapter 40, verses 12 to 26, and chapter 41, verses 1 to 7. There we find uh, uh, God is the Lord of creation, and he is the Lord of history. Then uh, uh, we're going to look at those first. Then after that, we're going to look out beyond that at some promises that God makes. Three voices are heard at the beginning of chapter 40 40 itself. And three pictures are portrayed in in chapter 41. And all of those revolve around this great big question, which is there in 40, 27 to 31 which begins, why? That's where we're going to go then. We're not going to follow the passage right through. We're going to start with those big sections and then move out and then move in to understand this. First of all then, chapter 40, verses 12 and onwards. Isaiah says, in order to be comforted, we must remember God is the Lord of creation. Verse 12. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? He says, he, God created the world with ease. All the waters, he said, fit into the hollow of his hand. He created the world, he says, with precision. He weighed the mountains on scales. He marked off the solar system with hand breadth. And he created, uh, says Isaiah, the world with infinite wisdom. Verse 13, who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? See, the, the, the Babylonians, amongst whom the Israelites lived in exile, believed that their god Marduk had created the world. But Marduk had had to go to another character called Ea, the All-Wise, to receive advice on how to do it. Well, says Isaiah, isn't that a pretty pathetic god? My God needed no advice. My God is not even bound by the laws of physics, he said. He is the author of the laws of physics. The universe that my God created, he says, is simply the, the, the wonderful outflow and overflow of his divine imagination. And that, he says, puts him above any political power that you can ever think of. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Why, he says, the greatest empires of the world are no more significant in God's recipe for, the, for this world than a little bit of flour on the scales would be. And this God is far, far greater, therefore, than any amount of worship could ever represent. Verse 16, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires or its animals enough for burnt offering. He is infinitely greater, says uh, Isaiah, than all nations. Before him, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. That verse doesn't mean that God has no interest in the nations. We'll see that. But it does mean that to compare God with the power of any nation is like uh, trying to compare a rowing boat with an ocean liner or a paper aeroplane with a DC-10 or, uh, or a, a lit match with the sun. There is no comparison, says Isaiah. So he says the folly of worshipping anything else in this universe is absolutely laughable, isn't it? To whom then, verse 18, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. God made us and yet somehow we insist on making a God to worship. What a cruel and tragic irony. You know, if, we're, if we're rich, we might make quite an impressive God. 
for Isaiah, that was a, a gold-plated idol. For modern people, that might be a, a house or a lifestyle that attracts the interest of Hello! magazine. Most of us, though, are not quite that impressive. We have to choose the wooden variety of God, don't we, to make. But, says Isaiah, make sure you choose wood that won't rot, don't we? Make sure you choose a skilled craftsman so it doesn't fall over, won't you? Perhaps more than anything else, make sure you've got an allied Dunbar insurance policy because you can guarantee there will be trouble ahead. Or perhaps, he says, Perhaps in a slack moment, perhaps when you actually have got nothing better to do and you just your mind starts wandering, perhaps you'll wonder whether it's worth worshipping any of those idols at all. Verse 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing, he says. Here is God exalted far above his universe. He only needs to flick his fingers, says Isaiah. He only needs to choose for something to happen, and it happens. Now, there's a lovely little throwaway line in Genesis chapter 1 that for me sums this, this uh, all up. It was pointed out to me a number of years ago. It's just a little phrase there that says, He also made the stars. Vast expanses of space, the mysterious origins of the universe that still puzzle and challenge and tantalize the very best brains in the world. From God's perspective, are just the detail that He etched in. He is the Lord of all creation, says Isaiah. Mark that, meditate on it. It is absolutely vital for what I'm going to say. Then, he says in chapter 41, verses 1 to 7, he is the ruler over all human history too. God begins the, the scene at the beginning of chapter 41 as if it was a courtroom. There must be silence in court, he says. The witnesses must come forward. They must give their evidence. Verse 1, Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. But what's the crime, if crime it be? What's the investigation all about? 
Well, it seems that there is a new and troublesome warrior king on the move who has uh, 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 started to throw everyone into a frenzy. But Isaiah says, who is stirring up this warrior king? Verse 2, who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. In other words, this warrior has someone more powerful behind him. We need to find this out. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on by a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. As Isaiah continues, it will become plain in future chapters that the king he is describing is a king called Cyrus. Cyrus was a great uh, king of Persia who ultimately overthrew the Babylonian Empire. But uh, it's not important at this point who Isaiah is talking about. The important thing at this point is that Cyrus, who will become the most powerful man in the whole world, is simply a puppet of God. God the first and the last is organising all this. He sends the nations into a pathetic flurry of fearful activity. They try, first of all, to uh, gang up against uh, Cyrus. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Each helps the other and says to his brother, be strong, like a whole set of drunks trying to support each other and actually ending up in a heap on the floor. And they desperately, desperately try to make a really good quality idol, this time to protect themselves. Verse 7, the craftsman encourages the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer spurs him on, who uh, uh, spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it's good. Oh, this is a good idol. Perhaps it'll protect us. But actually, says Isaiah, They've still got to put a couple of six-inch nails through its feet to keep it standing up. Verse 7, he nails down the idol so that it will not topple. It's rather pathetic, isn't it? The truth is nothing can protect them from Cyrus if God decides Cyrus is going to destroy them. Indeed, not even Cyrus can protect them from Cyrus because God has stirred him up. This is the God I am talking about, says Isaiah. The God who made the stars and gave each one of them a name. The God who is the author of human history. Not just a few little bits of history here and there. Not just the history of Israel. Not just the course of of a few people's lives. He is the author of all history, says Isaiah. And even pagans do his will. You know, it's absolutely vital for us that we realise that when things go wrong. That's what Isaiah is trying to get us to grasp. When God seems to have failed... 
See, that's the situation that these Israelites were in. They were tempted to think, as they languished in exile, that God was miles away. They were tempted to uh, think that uh, they were beyond his reach. So can Christians be sometimes. And it really hits us when we suddenly realise that our personal circumstances are, are completely out of control. We think God's not there. In fact, sometimes we can seek to comfort ourselves in that. Because we want to hang on desperately to an image of God as a, as a lover, as someone who really loves us and is concerned for us. And it is just deeply, deeply painful to us to think that God in some way is still in control even of this thing that is going wrong. I, I so vividly remember a friend of mine, um, he, uh, he was a vet and uh, his son died of meningitis. It was a form of meningitis that actually uh, could only be picked up from calves. He knew that he must have brought that bug home. And he wrestled with a sense of guilt, and especially because he had uh, some sort of a faith anyway, he wrestled with this terrible sense of how could God have allowed this to happen. And I remember him telling me that he'd been very comforted by a Christian friend of his who had reassured him that uh, there were some things that God just couldn't control. There were some things that were out of God's control. He shouldn't try and blame God for this. It's just a terrible natural circumstance. And I sat there thinking, is that really the comfort he thinks it is? Because if God is like that, then can he have any real hope in eternity? If God actually is not quite in control of his universe, if in fact the forces of evil are so powerful, the jury's still out as to whether God will win, if God is actually looking on, wringing his hands as we do silly things and damage ourselves. Is there really any hope? It does seem infinitely harder and to, to say that there is a sense, even in the worst of circumstances that we see, there is still a sense in which God is in control, even of the evil things that happen. He's not the author of them. There are forces of evil out there. There, there are forces that are incredibly malicious to us, of whom the devil is the chief one. But... There is absolutely nothing which happens in this universe, whether it's on the farthest star or in the most illustrious royal courtroom or in the deepest re recesses of a human heart that happens without God in some sense permitting it, even overseeing it. I know that increases infinitely the pain and anguish in the short term of working through those issues. 
But the Bible is absolutely clear that that is the case. And it is absolutely clear as well that that is the only grounds on which we can have any hope that these painful circumstances will one day be no more. God can only make promises, says Isaiah, because God is in control. Let's look at those promises that he makes. We can only do it quickly. There are six promises, six uh, pictures. Three of them are voices calling out, and then three of them are actually pictures. The three voices then, in chapter 40, uh, verses 3 to 11. The first voice, in verse uh, 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, calling, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a royal preparation. They are rolling out the red carpet, but this is not just a bit of fabric. No, they're flattening mountains. They're filling up valleys to prepare for this king, because this king, says Isaiah, is God, and he is going to come. Not just to Israel, all the nations are going to see this. What does it matter if you are in exile now? You will see God. Verse uh, uh, 6 then begins a second voice. And that voice says, God's word does not fail. Verse 6, a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. People come and go, says Isaiah. One minute they are strong and full of vitality and the next minute they are history. That is the way the world is. But not the word of God, he says. When God makes a promise, his promise will not fail because he is the Lord of creation, because he is the Lord of history. His word will not fail. It will stand forever. The third voice then has, uh, if anything, a more dramatic sense of God's power and a more intimate sense of God's love. Verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. What's he going to be like? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. A beautiful conflation of two pictures here. Here is God, great and mighty, a warrior, defeating every foe. 
But what does he do? Why does he do it? He does it so that he can stoop down like a shepherd and pick up the helpless lambs and clutch them to his breast and carry them to safety and lead them gently. What a set of promises then. What a set of voices. The Lord is coming, says Isaiah. The Lord's word will not fail. He will destroy all opposition so that he can grasp his people to to himself. And he will do that because he is in control. Oh, look at the pictures in in chapter 41, verses uh, 8 and following. First of all, in uh, in, in verse 8, to 13, there is a servant, a slave even, who has uh, been up and, and, and uh, uh, chosen. But this slave, this menial character, is going to find that all his powerful foes, who could crush him in a moment, he thinks, just melt away. You, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its father's corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes you by your right hand and says, do not fear, I will help you. You're not even going to have to fight, he says. You'll come there and you won't even be able to find your enemies in the end. Because I've fought on your behalf. Or the second uh, uh, picture. A worm, this time. The most insignificant piece of fauna, as far as Isaiah is concerned, is going to become a threshing sledge, a fearsome piece of agricultural machinery, which is designed to to, uh, uh, crush the grain and have the chaff just blow away. Well, that's what the opposition is going to be like for you, he says. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, reduce the hills to uh, to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up, a gale will blow them away, but you will rejoice in the Lord." and glory in the Holy One of Israel. Or finally, the third picture, just as the third voice in chapter 40 was uh, a little bit more intimate, there was the promise of the shepherd. So the third picture here is, uh, is, is a picture of a thirsty person who just desperately needs precious water. Verse 17, the poor and the needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set pines in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may know and consider and understand 
The hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Here is God then, whose word to people overwhelmed by the adverse circumstances that they find themselves in is absolutely powerful. He is coming, he says. He will not fail. He has promised it and his word lasts forever. He will come as a mighty warrior and a gentle shepherd. He will reverse our circumstances so dramatically that the enemies we fear will be no more, that they will blow away like chaff, he says, that the desperate thirst that we feel will somehow be satisfied by God eternally. Now, when did, when did those... Um, Promises get fulfilled. Very interesting question, isn't it? Some of them uh, seem to be fulfilled in the New Testament. For instance, uh, this voice of one calling, prepare the way for the Lord, is applied to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Christ, fulfills this. God came in the form of Christ. And Christ achieved the decisive victory that uh, would uh, start to see all these promises fulfilled. But still, says the New Testament, we live in exile. Still, the final fulfillment in the way that is described in Isaiah chapter 40 awaits us. But we do not need to doubt it. I mean, Isaiah gave these words to people who would be dead long before the promises started to be fulfilled. But he says, be comforted by this. This is who I am. I am the ruler of all creation. I am the ruler of all history. Be comforted by my promises. You, yourself, will receive these promises. And he says that to us still. One day, when Christ comes again, one day all the forces of evil will be overthrown. One day all the things that confuse us now will be no more. So then Isaiah turns a question to us. While we still wait for those things, says Isaiah, isn't it just a teensy-weensy bit silly to suggest that God's deserted you? Verse 27 of chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Yes, says Isaiah, this world is a confusing place. But then did you really expect to be able to understand everything about God? After all, we don't even understand his creation entirely yet. Isn't it then a little bit arrogant to suggest that we could understand the mind 
out of whom all the creation came. The truth is, he says, I've told you enough. I've given you promises. I have begun to fulfill those promises in such extraordinary ways that you have no need to doubt that those promises are absolutely unbreakable. And it is the living power of those promises which helps us to grow old, not distorted and damaged irrevocably and bitter because of the confusing, difficult, bad things that come our way, but to grow old gracefully, says Isaiah. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love the order of that. It's an absolutely beautiful picture. A picture, first of all, of, of soaring on eagles' wings. But if your wings fail, he says, then you'll be able to run a marathon. And when your running shoes run out, I promise you, you'll still be able to walk. You will not faint. If you're a Christian here this morning, and all of this but there is a promise here that for all the battering that you receive your faith can grow stronger and more mature you can grow old gracefully if you grasp who this God is And if you are older here, then you will know that that's true. You will know that our faith can be challenged in ways that we perhaps never had imagined, that we would have felt in advance would completely overwhelm us. And you will know as well the real danger that you can just get totally fed up with what you sense are God's broken promises. Frankly, you think, God doesn't impress me much any longer. People's faith actually can become sick and moribund, you know, in the same way that old people can become sick and moribund. But Isaiah says, don't you see? Don't you see, as I address, the, address these people in exile with just such a sick faith, don't you see? I make promises and I keep them. John the Baptist will appear hundreds of years after I've predicted this to herald Christ. And you just need to trust me, trust God. 
Because he is the ruler of this world, and when he makes a promise, he will not let us down. He assures us that one day, in fact, we will look back on all of our lives, on all of history, and we will say, surely he has done all things well. He's saying, trust me. Trust me, and you will soar like an eagle. Trust me, and when you have been battered, by this life a little bit, you will still run. And trust me, when you have been battered more than that, you will still be walking. You will not faint. I will keep you. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, well, let me ask you just one question. Would you rather be on the side that wins or the side that loses? Let's pray. Oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we lose sight of you so easily We think of you in such small terms. Widen our horizons, we pray. Help us, Lord, with a renewed confidence, despite the fact that so often it is hard to know your presence. Nevertheless, help us with a renewed confidence to trust in you. Please, Lord, we pray. Help us as you helped these exiles in Babylon to persevere until the day of glory. In Christ's name we pray.